Father, we thank you so much uh, for Jesus. Uh, without him, we would not have hope. The, the story of, of the gospel, this good news that, that in Jesus you save sinners, it really is the source of our peace, the source of our hope, and it, and it wells up within us and, and fills us with joy and with love. I pray that you would use uh, your word this morning to shape us to be uh, gospel people, people who are, are founded on Christ, uh, who know you, who, who live uh, with you and live with each other under the banner of Christ. I pray that you take your word and speak it to our hearts this morning. I pray that you would send your spirit to, uh, to open our hearts and minds to your word uh, this morning. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Uh, amen. Uh, well, in preparation for this week, I decided to do a little test of our uh, copy machine here at church. And it's a pretty good copier. So I decided I was going to take uh, our little bulletin picture here, and I was going to make a copy of that. And then I took uh, a co- that copy, and I put it on the glass, and I made a, a copy of the copy. And then I took the next copy, and I made a copy of the copy of the copy, and so forth, through a bunch of iterations. And, and it turns out our copier is actually pretty good, but it was still losing quality. So I actually took it home. We have a little uh, you know, all-in-one printer thing. And, and so I made a couple copies. And, and over time, this is what it ended up up with. Uh, you can tell you lost a lot of the nuance. If you see your little uh, bulletin in front of you, you can see what it's supposed to look like, even in black and white. And you can see that all the nuance on the side is gone. The mountains are gone. You can kind of read the words a little bit if you know what's there. You, you probably wouldn't know what this big glow in the middle was if you hadn't seen the picture before. And actually, you can see them side by side here uh, to see all that's lost if you do a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. Um, and I'm not trying to convince you that I have too much time on my hands or, or that I'm wasteful with church resources or these kind of things. But it's basically the same uh, point that the, the children's game telephone uh, teaches us, right? That, that over time, transmission uh, kind of loses the quality of the original. So the telephone game, if you play this as a kid, you know, the first person starts off and they've got a message and, and they're going to relay that to one person, kind of whisper it in their ear, and, and that person's going to whisper it to the next person and they go all the way along the line. And, and when you get to the end, what you discover is, what the last person says, what they heard, has nothing to do usually with what the first person had said. We see that, that transmission over time tends to, to muddy the waters and make things uh, less clear. So what's the point of this? The Christian church has been around for nearly 2,000 years, right? And in light of what we know about the quality of transmission over permutations like that, we might look at that long 2,000-year history and conclude that the church today really has no chance of being anything like uh, the first church, like the church that we see in the book of Acts. It's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy for 2,000 years, or it's, or it's 2,000 years of the telephone game. But we're, what we're about to discover is why, by the grace of God, there's actually great hope for the church today. And, and as we gather, we can actually uh, be a faithful church, an authentic church in line with the church that we see in Acts. So we're going to look at a, a picture of uh, the early church life here, the first church in Acts 2, uh, to discover what its priorities and what its commitments are so that we can then uh, reform our church by a, that uh, priorities of the early church. So our passage today is Acts 2, uh, 42 to 47. This would be a great time to turn there if you you haven't already done that. And if you're using the uh, Pew Bibles, it's found on page 1079. So Acts 2, 42 to 47. 
So we're going to start uh, first by looking at this picture of the first century church, and then we're going to look at what that means for us today, how we can adopt the same priorities and commitments as them. So we'll see this in two parts. Let's start by seeing what Luke says about this earliest gathering of Christians. Luke 2, 42-47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So this is just a brief snapshot of the earliest church. And and the first sentence there, verse 42, uh, really is kind of the the subject line of the whole paragraph. So so Luke will then fill it out in verses 43 to 47, what this looked like. But in 42, he gives four uh, priorities, four uh, commitments of the uh, earliest gathering of Christians. And you can see what those four are. They devoted themselves to four things, the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking bread and to uh, prayer. So let's make sure we understand what these, uh, these four things mean, what they look like. Uh, being devoted to the apostles' teaching, this first commitment of the early uh, Christian gathering, means treating with, the author- with authority those who were commissioned by Jesus to bear witness to him. So if we look at, back at uh, the first chapter of Acts, we see uh, Jesus, before he ascends to heaven, he commissions these apostles. This is what he says in Acts 1.8. He says to them, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's a very uh, similar thing to the commissioning we see at the end of the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, after the uh, resurrection of Jesus and before his ascension, he's, he's commissioning his uh, followers, commissioning his apostles. And this is what he says to them. This is from Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he commissions them, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus has called these apostles to a disciple-making mission, and he knows that part of this is, is teaching what Jesus himself taught, teaching uh, these new believers who come to faith by the the witness of these apostles, teaching them everything that Jesus taught and how to obey what he taught. And the authority, uh, this is what the early church is doing here that we see in Acts 2.42. And the authority of the apostles then is highlighted in verse 43 with the mention of the the apostles doing many wonders and signs that, that leave the people in awe. In other words, the the apostles are doing the the same kind of powerful ministry that Jesus did when he was on earth. It confirms that they are authoritative teachers. They've been commissioned by Jesus, and they've been empowered by the Spirit to do the same kind of ministry that Jesus himself was doing. And then further, if you look in verse 46, it mentions that they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And this is likely what they were doing in the temple. They were worshiping God, and they were being committed to the teaching of the apostles. 
And it turns out that the temple of that day, the one that Herod built, was this massive structure. There was actually enough room for, for all the believers at this point, some 3,000 of them, to, to meet there and to hear the apostles' teaching. So, so the first commitment of the church is to, to the apostles' teaching. Uh, the second commitment that we see in Acts 2.42 is, is translated in my Bible and probably in yours as fellowship. Uh, now, fellowship is a bit of a tricky word uh, for us in our context uh, I was uh, talking with a group of guys this week, and we decided that there are basically two ways that people use fellowship these days. Uh, the one is as basically church potlucks and get-togethers, basically hanging out in church terms. And the other is uh, in connection with J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, uh, Lord of the Rings series. The first book is called The, the Fellowship uh, of the Ring. And there's actually a third use uh, that has to do with the academic world, uh, but we weren't smart enough to get into that. So we're going to stick with these two. It's basically either a, a church nerd kind of a use or a uh, fantasy book nerd kind of a use. Uh, and interesting enough, it's actually the, the Tolkien sense that is a bit more in line with how the New Testament uses the word that's translated fellowship. It's, it's about a common bond, a sharing together in, around a, a particular mission. Uh, so like in the, the Lord of the Rings books, their, their bond there is between Frodo and his companions. They're, they're bonded by the ring and bonded by this mission of, of going against the forces of evil and destroying this ring so it's not put into the wrong hands. And in a similar way that the church is bound together in Christ and given this mission of disciple-making by him. So that's more the, the, what fellowship means in this context is more about that kind of getting your hands dirty, fighting together with a group because you believe in something and you have that common core belief that ties you together. Uh, so fellowship is about community, really. It's about a, a sharing in common around something that unites us in, in a powerful bond. And that this goes beyond just uh, church potlucks and hanging out is seen by the evidence of what this fellowship uh, produces in this early Christian community. Verses 44 and 45 explain what that looks like. What does fellowship look like? All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. In other words, when you, when you have fellowship, when you have a, a sharing in common, a common bond, then it suddenly uh, changes how you look at your own possessions. It's not just me and my stuff now. It's saying, well, how can my stuff help the whole community? And, of course, it's not just an early form of communism. You can't read that and see, well, that's what it's about. But it's not you know, forced giving up of your goods for other people. It's about you having new eyes to see the resources that God has given you so that you now can use everything that you have for the good of your new family, your new brothers and sisters who are bonded together in Christ. So the first commitment is to the apostles' teaching. The second commitment is to this fellowship, this common bond. And then, of course, if you have this common bond, you're going to find yourselves uh, eating together. And that's the, the third commitment, this breaking bread. It might be, again, kind of churchy language, but it's basically about uh, sharing meals together, sitting down around a, a table together, acting like a family, and sharing uh, meals and this breaking bread gets uh, a deeper significance when it's connected in with the Lord's Supper, as it often was for the early Christians. They would share a meal and they would break bread remembering what Jesus said, that, that when they break bread together, it's, it's like the Lord's Supper. They are proclaiming the death of Jesus until he comes again. So this, this breaking bread together is a community centered on uh, the gospel, centered on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's what breaking bread is about. And we're going to see that again at the end of verse 46. It's mentioned again. They're breaking bread in their homes. They're eating together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor of all the people. 
The fourth commitment then is to prayer. And Paul doesn't say, or Luke doesn't say a lot about uh, what that looks like in this context, but, but, but we see throughout the book of Acts that God's people are, are stopping and they're falling down before him. I mean, the prayer is what comes out of a lifestyle of worshiping God. You're, you're falling down on your knees before God and, and acknowledging that you're totally dependent upon him. And you're acknowledging that in Christ you are adopted as his children. You're able to lift up your hearts to him and proclaim that he's your father and, and bring everything in your heart uh, before him, your praises, your prayer requests. So these are the four uh, commitments that Luke is highlighting in this uh, short paragraph here. And as he does so, I don't want you to miss this, he also highlights what happens as a result of this early community. And that's that God gives them growth. So uh, there are others who are seeing this community, and, and they are taking notice. So in verse 43, the people, everyone is filled with awe when they see the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. So, so they're, they're watching this. They're filled with awe. And further, uh, it says in verse 47 that they're enjoying the, the favor of all the people. So everyone around it is seeing this community. They're seeing how they live together. They're seeing that they love each other. They're seeing how they worship, and they're drawn to that. And in any case, God is the one who then gives them growth. We see in the, the end of verse 47, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So the result of this community that's shaped by the gospel is that God is growing that community of faith. More people are putting their faith and joining in this community day after day after day. So if, we're, if I were to summarize this paragraph here, I'd summarize it in a sentence like this. The church is a contagious community that's shaped by the gospel. And this is what we see in the paragraph, right? That they're a tight-knit community is shown by their fellowship, their common bond, their sharing meals together. Uh, that they are a tight community that's shaped by the gospel is shown by their commitment to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. And that this gospel community then is contagious, is seen by the response of those who see this community and see how they live and see how they worship, and by God's work then to bring more and more people into that community of faith. Now, if we want to evaluate the health of a church today, this is a great passage to use. Acts 2, 42 to 47 is a great place to start because it's showing us the genuine thing. It's showing us what an authentic, healthy, uh, gospel-shaped, Christ-centered church looks like. See, it's really important for us to have a text like this because it helps us see, well, this is the genuine thing. This is the real deal. And then you can evaluate a church's health based on this. I learned the importance of this kind of thing when I saw a, telephone, or a, a TV show once called uh, Pawn Stars. This is one of those really weird shows that basically shows a, a particular uh, uh, business owner kind of running their business, kind of a sort of reality, sort of documentary kind of a genre. And this particular one follows this uh, pawn shop in, in Las Vegas, Nevada. And they have people bringing stuff to them all the time uh, to sell it at their pawn shop. And, and some of this stuff is worth a lot of money. But of course, some of it's not worth nearly as much as the people selling it think it's worth. So they've got to bring in experts often to determine the value of these different uh, things that are brought in to be sold. So in one instance, one of the, the younger workers decided that he was going to purchase on behalf of the shop uh, this vintage Gibson guitar that someone had brought in. Uh, but he was looking for the owners. He couldn't find them. They weren't around. So he decided, you know, I know Gibson guitars are worth a lot of money. He paid a good amount of cash to the guy, bought the guitar, and felt pretty good about it. And when one of the owners got back, he was a little bit nervous, but he decided before getting angry at his worker, he would take it into a vintage guitar expert and get it appraised to find out what the actual value of the guitar was. And of course, the expert knows 
everything about these guitars. He's had them in his hands. He's looked at them. He knows all the design nuances. He knows uh, how they've changed over time and all of these things. He, he can spot a genuine because he knows the real thing when he sees it. And he had to give them the bad news. Well, this antique Gibson guitar they just paid a whole bunch of money for, it's not actually an antique, and it's not actually a Gibson. Someone, it's just a cheap knockoff guitar that someone slapped a couple Gibson stickers on to make it look more valuable than it was. But because the expert had kn knew what the genuine thing looked like, he knew what the real thing looked like, he was able to give a proper valuation. And here's the thing. You can get a group of people together, and you can call it a church, but if it's not a community that's centered on Christ... Preaching the gospel, shaped by the gospel, maintaining the kind of priorities and commitments that the early church that we see in Acts 2 was holding on to, well, then what good is it to call it a church? It's just a cheap knockoff that's had a misapplied label to make it look like something that it's not really. See, this is what a healthy church looks like. This is, this is what's so good about being able to get back in Acts and see this. It's saying that a healthy church is a contagious community that's shaped by the gospel. So let's take this to today then. How do we become a church like that, centered on those priorities and those commitments today in our time, in our context? Well, the good news here is that a church is not just a copy of a copy of a copy because the church isn't called to, to copy in the narrowest sense what is presented in the book of Acts in the sense of like trying to find out, well, what did they wear? What might they have eaten? What did their houses look like? And, and those kind of things. We're, we're not called to copy in a narrow sense. Instead, we're to, to see their, their priorities. We're to see their commitments and make those same commitments our core commitments and live them out in our context and our time. So let's look at how these, these commitments then, uh, how we uh, hold on to these two uh, in our day as a church now. The, the, commit, the first commitment here is the, to the apostles' teaching, right? Uh, this commitment to the apostles' teaching, it remains the same for us, although it has uh, changed form now, because when the apostles were still alive, they were teaching people what Jesus taught and how to obey it face-to-face. -face. They were there uh, live and in person. Uh, but, of course, they have died and, and passed away, and we don't have them here to, to speak directly to us in, in their authoritative uh, co commission. But, in God's grace, they, their teaching has been recorded in the Bible. And that's one of the key reasons that there is actually hope for the church today to be more than just a copy of a copy of a copy. See, we have the apostles' teaching in the Bible. We have the, the Word of God here before us so that we can read it and we can hear what they taught. We can hear uh, what God did uh, throughout all of the ages. We can hear His great plan and, and come back to it. And that's the thing. The, the reformation of the church happens when we take the Bible seriously and we sit under its authority and under its teaching rather than sitting over it and determining what we think it can say. And this is what's happened throughout history. So back in the, the 15th century, end of the 15th century, Martin Luther starts reading his Bible, and John Calvin starts reading his Bible. Other people like them start reading the Bible, and they, they see that the church of their day had strayed from what God had called the Christian community to be. And because of that, they were able to call it back to reformation. They were able to reform the church and bring it back to what God had called it to be. And the same thing happened uh, uh, later in history as well. Our own heritage comes from uh, countries in Scandinavia, people in, in Scandinavia starting to read their Bibles. This is late uh, 19th century, early 20th century. So, for example, in Sweden, uh, uh, early Swedish Christians were, were reading their Bibles, were seeing what it said about the church and about the gospel, and they were looking at the, the state church of Sweden and saying, this doesn't line up. 
And so they were trying to reform the, the Swedish church uh, from within. And actually, they got in a lot of trouble, and a bunch of them came to the U.S., and the Evangelical Free Church Movement started out of that history. It starts with a commitment to the apostles' teaching. That's where the reformation of the church always comes from. It's getting back to God's Word and treating it as authoritative. So for us today, being committed to the apostles' teaching means holding fast to the Bible. And it's not just letting someone else uh, read the Bible for you. It's, it's you, yourselves, getting into the Word, reading it, studying it, uh, spending time in it, uh, spending time with God, finding out what it says. It's, it's a commitment of each of us to, to have the apostles' teaching be at the forefront of what we're, what we're intaking, to, to read the Bible, to find out what it says. Now let's, let's, uh, we'll come back to the community ones, the fellowship and breaking bread in a minute. I want to spend some time there, but, but I want to look at the priority of prayer here, the fourth priority that Paul, uh, or that, <laughs> I keep saying Paul, that Luke uh, mentions in, in Acts 2.42. He doesn't say a lot about prayer in this brief paragraph, but we do see as we read the book of Acts that the early Christians were, were dedicated to prayer, that at crucial points uh, Luke mentions that they are stopping and they're praying, they're asking God's guidance. And, and today, too, prayer has to be central. I mean, prayer is vital because it's demonstrating that we are totally dependent upon God and that we recognize that. And, and as we pray, we also uh, learn to live in tune with God. It develops our relationship with Him. And we discover that He truly is there. He truly is a, a loving Father. And the more we pray and, and lift our hearts to Him and live a lifestyle of prayer, the more we discover that God really is a loving Father who invites us to bring everything before Him. Now, I've, this is one of the areas that, that as a church we've kind of identified. I've talked to the elders about this. That I want to, to lead us into a year of prayer here. We can't just assume that prayer is happening, but we've got to be praying together regularly and consistently and having more venues for people to, to join their hearts and lift uh, their voices in, in prayer to God. So I want, to know, I want you to let you know a little bit of what that's uh, starting to look like uh, here at our church right now. Uh, you probably don't know this, but at elder meetings, we're spending a lot of time in prayer. We're praying uh, for the church. We're praying for individuals uh, within the church. We're praying for uh, God's work uh, through our ministry. And we're spending a lot of time together praying. And that's one of my favorite parts of elder meetings is, is hearing the heart of these godly men uh, for the people of Trinity. Uh, before the worship team practices on Thursdays and on Sunday mornings, we, we stop and we pray. We pray that God would use these services to help you be able to praise Him, to help uh, facilitate your worship to God. And after the service, we're hoping soon to have uh, prayer ministers up here for those who would like to uh, pray with people. We're also trying to send out uh, weekly prayer updates by email. And if you don't have email, we print them out and there's a a table out there with, with a prayer request on it so that you can be praying for all the concerns and all the things that are on people's hearts uh, within our church. And we send out prayer alerts by email and, and all those kind of things. And we're hoping to soon start a, a monthly Sunday night prayer meeting even so that we can have time to spend together uh, getting on our knees before God and praising Him and, and bringing our petitions and our cares before Him. And, and small groups. We've mentioned small groups already this, already this morning. We've, we're asking our small group leaders to pray for every single person in their group every day by name. And then as the elders, we're committing to pray for the small group leaders as they lead these groups. So basically, we're, we're trying to have this, this be a year where our whole church is just bathed in prayer. It's easy for it to be assumed, but it can't be assumed. It has to be a central part of who we are. Tell us a little bit about how uh, commitment to Scripture and, and prayer are, are commitments uh, at, our, at our church, at Trinity. But I think those two tend to be things that 
that most Christians kind of get. You, you get that uh, you have to be to get dedicated to the apostles' teaching. You get that prayer is a central part of church life. But I want to come back to fellowship and breaking bread here because these two are really connected together. They're really about uh, community, uh, Christian community. And I think this is one of the, the biggest opportunities for growth that we have as a church. We can kind of bank on the fact that most of us understand Scripture is important. Most of us understand that prayer is important. But, but some of us really do understand that Christian community is important, but, but some of us are not yet there. So here's the thing. Humans are drawn together for all sorts of reasons, right? And they uh, form communities based on their common interests, their common objects of love. So for an example, uh, later today, Bunches of people across Michigan are going to uh, put on blue clothes and sit in front of TVs, some together, some alone, and some in a big stadium, and they're going to form a community of camaraderie around their love and frustration with the Detroit Lions. This is one of the things that draws people together. Uh, sports form communities at some level. If I see someone wearing a Boston Red Sox hat, I know that I have at least one thing in common with them that I can talk about that. It's not a very uh, often thing that happens here in Michigan, but it does happen. At least I get some dirty stares if I'm wearing mine uh, from uh, Tigers fans. But those are superficial things, right? Those are just affinity level things. It's a, a lower level commitment and a lower level community. The community of the church is a more radical kind of community because the shared object of love that unites us is Christ. And Christ isn't just an accessory to life. Jesus isn't just someone that we kind of admire from a distance. Jesus is the foundation of our life. Christ is king, and if he's king, that means he's, he's Lord of my life. He's Lord of your life, and, and that means that we share a common foundation. It's not just an affinity level thing, a superficial kind of thing, but it's a core foundation that's the same. And this is kind of weird, but that means that really I have more in common with a fellow Christian across the world, say in Iran or somewhere, than I do with my neighbors who don't yet know Jesus. The bond that I have, or the superficial things I will share with my neighbors, I'll share a common language, our skin might look the same color and those kind of things, we might have some of the same interests in those things. But the bond that I have with believers across the world is a stronger bond because it's a foundational level bond. We share a core common belief in Christ. And that's what's so great about the church. This is one of the things I love about the church is that we have a group of people here who, who might not unite around many other things, but despite our differences, we gather because of Jesus. And, and the Bible says that we are like brothers and sisters. It's a new family formed with that common foundation in Christ. But here's the problem. It's easy for us to get disconnected from each other. It's easy for us to go to those communities where it's just affinity-based or shared interests. And it's easy for us to then isolate ourselves, or at least to be isolated from Christian community, and to not then live as a Christian community in the church. It looks sometimes like the common bond that we have, this common foundation in Christ, is something that's only expressed uh, for a couple hours on a Sunday morning. Listen, if that's true of you, if you do feel like you are isolated from Christian community, I want to exhort you strongly here. You are not meant to live alone. You need other Christians in your life because you need people who can bring you back to the gospel, who can put you back to Jesus when you need it. You need people to encourage you and to challenge you and to support you and to love you and to pray for you and to care for you. You need Christian community. 
You really do. And if you don't think you need it, then you especially need it because you need to see your blind spots. You need to see that you really were meant to live with other Christians. I mean, that's what the, the picture of the early church is always, this strong community bond. And, and this is why we've been pushing small groups uh, so much recently. This is why we have things like small groups and missional communities. And if you don't know what a small group is, it's basically a gathering of about 8 to 12 people or so. Uh, typically meets once a week. And right now we're doing it for a 10-week semester from now until mid-December. And it's just a time for you to, to meet other people, to start to build those connections, to study Scripture together, to pray together. But basically it's just the kind of the starting blocks of Christian community. And, and a missional community is, is basically the same thing, but maybe on steroids or something. We're trying to build in uh, these patterns of, of eating together, of, of dis- being disciples together, and then of going out and reaching out together. These groups are an opportunity for you to start to build a Christian community with other believers. As you study God's Word together, as you pray together, as you eat together, the community life of the church is starting to grow. Now let me be clear on this. Uh, small groups are not the big cure-all. This isn't some panacea that's going to solve all of our problems and immediately sprout up community like we see in Acts 2, uh, 42 to 47. But if we are going to grow that kind of community, it starts with these kind of connections so that we can start to rebuild the right priorities into our life as a church and so that we can live together as Christians are designed to live together. And of course, there are lots of ways to uh, experience Christian community. And as Scott said earlier in the service, uh, mission trips are a great way because you get thrown in with this other group of people for an intense, uh, uh, short amount of time, and you have to build community or you're going to sink together. So you are, this common bond around a mission is, is so important. So there are lots of ways to, to, to grow Christian community. There's lots of ways to live in Christian community. But please, please, please do not fall for the trap of living in isolation from other Christians. We are not meant to live that way. It's so difficult to, to have a, a, a thriving, living Christian faith if you're not doing it with brothers and sisters because God has given us the church for that purpose. You need community. Uh, when Emily and I were first uh, married, we lived in a, a little one-bedroom apartment um, uh, with two little buildings side by side, and, and uh, most of our friends had already graduated from college and moved on, so we didn't have a lot of friends at the time. Uh, but before long, we uh, met another couple. Uh, we're introverts, so we didn't meet them. They came and were more outgoing. They came and introduced themselves to us. And then because they're outgoing, they went and introduced themselves to another couple and another couple. And before long, the four of us couples were eating uh, dinner together together every Thursday night. And every Thursday night for over a year, we were rotating which house we were eating at or which little uh, bedroom or little uh, one-bedroom apartment we were eating uh, together in. And those relationships, because they were consistent and because they were uh, always together, they, were, they grew deeper, they grew stronger as we talked about life together, as we shared the struggles of early marriage together, as, as uh, the three of us couples who didn't have children tried to, to help the one couple with this newborn baby deal with uh, being parents and all the stuff that comes with that, and, and walking each other through the, uh, the difficult decisions about grad school and career and, and money and all these things. And even for uh, committed introverts like Emily and me, this was such a, a life-giving time. Every uh, week we were looking forward to Thursday with great anticipation, and, and every Thursday when we met together, we came away refreshed and encouraged and full of life. 
I've heard people say before that the, the first years of marriage were really, really hard for them, but, but this wasn't true of, of Emily and, and me. We felt like our first years of marriage were, were just filled with, with joy, and, and I think this Christian community played a role in that because here were people who were always there for us. No matter what was going on, they were there. They knew what was going on in our lives. They were able to encourage us and speak truth into our lives time and time and time again. And we've started to see that happen here in Ludington too. Christian community is starting to grow here as we, we get to know each other better, as we start to be formed together uh, by the gospel, as the gospel draws us together. And I know some of you have been here a long time, and so you, you see new faces here, and they still feel like new faces. They don't feel like church family yet. And, and some of you have been here a long time, or maybe a short time, and you, you don't really feel like you can actually possibly even have a deeper connection with someone else. You've kind of given up hope of, of true Christian community. But some of you are, are, are new and fresh and, and you're, you're excited about what God's doing and you, and you can't wait to be part of Christian community. And here's the thing, wherever you are, we have an opportunity here to do something special. We have an opportunity to be a church that's, that's marked by gospel-shaped community. This is a, an opportunity for who we can be. And, and I praise God because I think we're becoming that. I think we're becoming a community that's drawn together by the gospel and that's being shaped by the gospel. And this is great not only for Christians who get to experience this kind of community, it's also part of the unstoppable plan of God to bring salvation to more and more people. Because see, when we live together well in community, others are going to take notice. That's what happened in the early church, and it's what happens uh, today as well. I've seen a couple just tiny instances of it in the past couple years. A few weeks ago, one of the families in church was moving, and uh, so a half dozen of us uh, guys or so went over to, to help them move. And we went over to the old house, and we uh, carted all their furniture into trailers, and we brought it over. And by the time we got to the new house... We got there right about the same time that the cable guy was working on getting uh, all the stuff installed there. And, and he came out of the house and he looked at these three trailers full of stuff and these half a dozen guys, a bunch of trucks. And, and he turned to the homeowner and he said, how'd you get friends like that? My friends would not help me move. They all they don't answer the phone if they know I'm moving. See, it, it makes a difference. If you have people who are there for you when you need them, the difficult times, the, the not fun stuff of moving, moving furniture, and even that could become a fun thing. It could become an opportunity to share in this bond. A very similar thing happened uh, a year ago uh, when another family was moving into their house and they were preparing it uh, to move in. And, and uh, one Friday night or Saturday night or something, uh, almost like 10 people from the church came to, to help this family get their house ready uh, to move into. And, and we got there right as the drywaller was finishing and, and he comes out and sees this big group of guys showing up. And, and again, he turned to the homeowner and said, I mean, do, you, do you have like something that you're bribing these guys with? Are you blackmailing them? Like, How do you get this many people to come out on a Friday night to help you do stuff that's well, really not that fun, frankly. See, Christian community makes a difference. It, these are just little tiny things, right? But they're start of something bigger. As we become a community that's knit together tighter and tighter by the gospel, as we become a church family that cares about it, that loves each other, that's praying for each other, we become a contagious community because people see that and they see that it makes a difference. And there's a longing for community. There's a longing to belong. And when they see that love that people have for each other, and they see that it's rooted in the Christ, it's a powerful testimony to Jesus. I mean, the bottom line is the way we live together as a community of faith can point people to Jesus. And this is really my, my vision for our church, my vision for Trinity, is that we are called to be a contagious community shaped by the gospel. And that's why we're doing groups because we're trying to, to find ways of getting people to be able to develop community like this. 
Because here's the thing, it has to go beyond just uh, generational affinity or shared interests or anything like that. It has to go past all of the human barriers and past all the human designators and getting to the foundation that we share in Christ. It's a foundational connection we have that, that, the, that the community that we have, it has to be founded on and built on. Not just the superficial stuff, the root, deep stuff. Now here's the thing, I don't want to oversell you on this, but I do want to get to the truth. So you can, you can be a growing Christian, you can be a thriving Christian without being in a small group, without being in a missional community, right? Our church doesn't have to have a small group structure to be a healthy, thriving church. However, the pace of life combined with our own sinful tendency to distraction and to isolation and to misplaced priorities are always moving us away from the kind of community that God has called us to be. Groups are just one of the ways that we relearn the patterns of life that are taught us by the gospel and that we see in the early church. Uh, small groups and missional communities, they're crucial because they, they help us rebuild those patterns into the normal course of our lives so that we become a community that points to Jesus by how we live together. That's what all this about small groups is about. I'm not trying to make you busy. I'm trying to, not trying to put more things on, the, on your calendar. I'm trying to give you an opportunity to be part of something bigger because that's what God has called you to do. He has called you in Christ to be part of the church. And, and that's what we find ourselves part of. We find that we are becoming then the family of God. We're becoming brothers and sisters united in Christ. It's about becoming a church that's more and more like the genuine thing a church that's reflecting the same kind of commitments and the same kind of priorities that we see from the first church when they were meeting in Jerusalem. May God in his grace build us into that kind of community. May, may he grow us around the gospel so it would be this contagious community of faith centered on Christ and proclaiming the gospel. Please pray with me. God, all human plans are just mortal plans. They, uh, they come to nothing without your power. Uh, if, if this uh, small groups thing and mission of communities thing is just stuff that we've made up to try to make ourselves feel better, then, then what's the point? But God, we long to be part of a Christian community that, that is shaped by the gospel, that is drawn together by our, the love that we have for Christ and the, the love that you have for us and, and the transformation that you have affected us. We long to be that kind of community, the kind of community that people see and, and they, they, are, they long to be part of that and they, they praise you because of what they see in the Christian community. That's what we long to be. God, I pray that you'd be working in our hearts, stirring us up so that we wouldn't be uh, complacent with church patterns of, and patterns of life that, that draw us away from community, that draw us away from uh, the Bible, that draw us away from prayer, so that we can come back to what we are called to be and who we are in you. Father, would you please shape us as a church to be faithful followers of Jesus together for your glory. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.